welcome to episode 7 of the European Football Show and the World Football Index. Um, I'm your host, Alan Feely, as always, coming to you from Lisbon, and I'm joined by John O'Sullivan in Galway and Jasmine Baba in Germany. Uh, John, how are you getting on? I'm excellent, thanks. Thanks for having me on once again. Absolutely. And Jasmine, how are things in Germany? I'm tired of football. I'm too tired. It's too much football. There's too much new football news and... As I said, you might hear me just break down without the mention of Frank Lampard today. <laughs> He's certainly a presence missing from our lives, isn't he? Um, but yeah, I was actually thinking recently that maybe if we had like, you know, the old school three o'clock kickoff for the Premier League, four o'clock kickoff on Sunday for Syria, uh, and then maybe, I don't know, a Saturday kickoff for Spanish football, and all the games run at the same time, I just feel like... It would just simplify everything so much and it would make football so much more enjoyable to follow. Even if you could stagger the games out maybe in some way in terms of highlights and stuff to be able to catch more games. But I think the old school kind of one game per week is really the best way, isn't it? Like This current saturation is just too much. What do you think, John, about that? Do you think it's kind of just too much football? Yeah, it's way too much. It's like when you eat a load of pizza, you never want (laughs) pizza less than when you eat a ton of pizza. And I kind of feel like that after... Every match day, I'm full, but I'm not really satisfied, and I self-loathe a little bit for making myself go through the process once again. Yeah, I just think the quality of football is like quite low this season in terms of the players are evidently fatigued and tired. Like you saw for Everton, for instance, we'll talk later in their game against Fulham uh, last night. They just looked exhausted, you know. Yeah, like the the quality is just always going to invariably dip with just a with just a sheer volume of football and such little time for recovery. And even in terms of introducing new tactical ideas, such little pitch time in terms of training. And, you know, I fear it'll only get worse because there's going to be Euro 2021 or 2020, as it's still called, despite the fact it's taking part in 2021 upcoming. And that's sure to tire out a lot of players. And then, of course, you have a Winter World Cup in 2022. So not to be a merchant of absolute doom and hellscape and naysaying, but this quality of football could genuinely be quite poor for the next two years, unfortunately. And what do you think, Jasmine? Do you think that the European Championships, the World Cup, are you looking forward to them or do you feel being ambivalent about them? Uh, I think the Euros, I just don't care right now. I mean, I always care as a fan. I love international football as a fan, not so much as someone who works in football. Um, But in a midst of a pandemic that hasn't ended in football on every day, I really couldn't care less this year. I'm really optimistic today. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I think the, the end is lockdowns again to people, aren't they? Um, but yeah, so I guess starting off in England, John, um, what were your thoughts on kind of the major storylines this weekend in the Premier League? Well, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, it was another great weekend for Manchester City in the Premier League. Not only did Pep Guardiola's increasingly impregnable looking team keep another clean sheet in their 3-0 defeat at Tottenham, their closest rivals, in inverted commas, Manchester United dropped points again in a one-all draw at West Bromwich Albion. City now, of course, sits seven points clear at the top of the table, a cushion that could well be extended if they win their game in hand against Everton on Wednesday evening. So guys, um, how impressed have you been with City? Yeah, I think it's quite remarkable. We've, we've discussed it many times in the show, the way they're playing, and they just haven't let up at all. And uh, the kind of their defensive kind of solidity and just their kind of relentless winning nature really was just qu- quite incredible. I thought they were so much better than Spurs and when they beat them 3-0. Um, it was really something to behold. And 
as an Evertonian, I'm definitely quite anxious heading into our clash of the Wednesday night. Um, but what would you, Jasmine, what do you think about Man City? Again, I think I've been on the Man City hype train for quite a few weeks. As soon as they put in a bit of a run, I was like, this is it. This is their season, I think. Uh, we saw a lot of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer love um, a couple of weeks back. And that love is well and truly gone when you think that Chelsea yet to still play Newcastle, which you'd hope that they would win that. They're only currently seven points of Manchester United. If you went back around four weeks ago, you think that was not a thing that could be happening. I honestly think out of all of the top six teams at the moment, Manchester City's closest rivals are Chelsea. Really? You reckon that Thomas Tuchel has done that good a job that quickly, that he's kind of turned the squad around and really turned them into serious title challengers? Yeah, the way he sets up his teams and changes them tactically to suit um, any kind of problem that he's got is magnificent and what Chelsea needed. I don't think people have really grasped the fact that he's a world-class manager. And I think out of the top, the three above them that they can go over, I still don't want to discount Liverpool at the moment. Um, especially what I've seen of Manchester United recently and how I've seen Leicester drop off before. I would probably pit them against Leicester to take their spot in the Champions League qualifying. Yeah, I think Bruno Fernandes' goal was superb for sure um, at the weekend. But I reckon that this kind of theme that United are having of not, not beating teams they should be beating and kind of dropping points when they shouldn't be dropping points is definitely not the stuff of champions, but maybe in the long run, as you said, it could even be putting their top four place under threat. But um, but I guess, you know, kind of a major shock, if you could say that, even though maybe it wasn't a shock based on recent form, uh, was Leicester beating Liverpool 3-1, of course, on a Saturday morning. And John, I just wanted to ask you your thoughts in this game and also uh, Jurgen Klopp post-game. Obviously, we learned about uh, his mother's passing this week. And it kind of changed the way a lot of people are perceiving Liverpool at the moment in terms of, you know, the kind of strain, the emotional strain that the whole experience, both on and off the pitch, has been for them in trying to retain their title this season. So I just to ask you, like, do you think that the title is completely over? And also, what, what are your thoughts on Klopp based on all the kind of, you know, commotion that's been happening this week? Oh yeah, I think the title is well and truly gone. And I think it's only got one destination and that's to the Etihad Stadium. Um, as for Klopp, I just feel so bad for him. A very, very emotional person. He was uh, having read bi- biographies about him. He was very close to his mother. So he was unable to go home and grieve her at a funeral. Um, he's also very close to his sons, who invariably will spend a lot of time in Merseyside, but they're unable to go over there now. So it must be a very kind of bleak existence. His team are in bad form. He's crippled by injuries. He has a lot of things going on in his personal life. And what's his recourse? He goes to training. He goes home. Repeat game day goes home training repeat that's that's kind of kind of feels like groundhog day for him right now so like i have a lot of sympathy for him i actually thought in the lesser game liverpool were very good for about 75 minutes and probably maybe should have been uh more than one goal clear but then as as has been the case in uh in, <laughs> in this season so far for them they were kind of bedeviled by misfortune uh it took the form of an allison blunder where he uh where he crashed into ozan kabak who had a, <laughs> a baptism of fire on his debut 
to say the least. And uh, Jamie Vardy tapped into an empty net. But uh, I think Liverpool really were undone by two ludicrous refereeing decisions. And these are the kind of rubs of the green that they probably would have gotten previous seasons when they were better and they weren't going through a campaign like this. But uh, as it was, it really undone them and Leicester went on to claim the 3-1 victory. So it's definitely put pay to their title uh, challenge. But, uh, you know, they're they're in the top four race. And um, I'd still be confident looking at all their underlying numbers that they would get there. But that's really, you know, depending on getting players back. Naby Keita will be back soon. That will be a lift. And Diogo Jota, I think, more than anyone else, will be a massive addition back into this squad. Definitely, yeah. And what do you think about Alisson? Like, what actually is happening to him? Because he, he was oh, imperious for so long and he just looks a different player completely now at the moment. Like, I'm not privy to information like that, but there, he missed the Brighton game and a lot of people were saying that uh, he might have been concussed uh, in uh, in a challenge with Cueving Kelleher. And now, since that game, which Kelleher played, Kelleher has been missing and then Alisson has made some a number of mistakes. So I'm not suggesting anything untoward, but perhaps, you know, it's just the impact of of carrying a knock or carrying an injury but like it's he's made errors before for Liverpool but they've never been this closely condensed and they've never been this many so it's it's a very it's a very strange very strange sight for a Liverpool fantasy I think the Quebec the Quebec thing probably doesn't happen with a defender that he's had more reps with and has played more often with like that was Quebec's debut like I mentioned and I'm sure that if they had played more often together there would have been a better line of communication between the two and either one of them would have cleared it as <laughs> as it turned out they both tried to clear it and none of them cleared it so um it, it, it was a strange one generally Klopp is quite slow to blood new signings in but like he has no alternative now and I suppose his justification for for being so kind of conservative in terms of blooding signings uh, was borne out in the fact that uh, Alisson and uh, Quebec were so clearly not in the same wavelength. Yeah, certainly. And Jasmine, for you, because obviously me and John have kind of, you know, allegiances ahead of this weekend's Merseyside Derby, but from your perspective, who are you fancying in going to this game and what do you make of Liverpool's kind of situation at the moment? Um. Judging on both teams' performances on the weekend, I am <laughs> I'm not um, backing any particular team. I could probably see a draw, to, if I'm quite honest with you. To be fair to Liverpool, I feel they were a little bit unlucky in against um who did they against Leicester? Sorry, I <laughs> just completely blanked on who they actually played. Um. They matched Leicester toe-for-toe for a good 70 minutes and it was basically the kind of communication error between Quebec and Allison that really set them apart. I think if that had not happened, it was heading for a draw because their tactics were both on either side, both Brendan Rodgers and Jurgen Klopp were pretty toe-to-toe, um, nothing out of the ordinary um, the Leicester lined up similarly, like they have been the more four three three, and Leicester matched up with a four four two. Um, kind of changed their tactics a little bit, and it was a little bit of when Leicester faced Arsenal, they kind of just let their opposition have the ball, and you know Liverpool did go one nil up, and I think on another day that could have transferred into a win or a draw. But yeah, heading into with especially Everton's performance against Fulham, I I really cannot say one will definitely be better than the other at the moment. Uh, I think 
the current schedule and Liverpool obviously have Leipzig um, midweek that yeah you you don't know what kind of team is going to turn out because everyone looks lethargic right now yeah certainly it's strange from an Everton perspective because obviously they beat Spurs 5-4 in the FA Cup during the week and it was a kind of a really marathon performance they got the victory in extra time uh, right at the death and then to kind of go from that kind of emotionally draining experience to go and lose 2-0 at Goodison Park on Sunday evening is just disgusting really it's just there's no other word for it like it's a terrible result everything were just completely as you said lethargic just lacking in energy Carlo Ancelotti made a couple of interesting changes. He uh, played Gilfie Sigurdsson as kind of a false nine with Richardson and James on kind of either side of him, and it just didn't didn't work at all. Like, um, he swapped out Yerni Mina and uh, Mike Keane at centre back for Mason Holgate and and uh, Ben Ben Godfrey, and brought back Seamus Coleman into the starting lineup. It just didn't work, and it's just a bizarre performance to be honest. I think partly was the emotional tiredness of it from the Spurs game and also just the physical tiredness of it. I just think he was kind of one of those aberration performances that would ultimately hamstring Everton if they want to actually push on and do something. Um, but yeah, I don't think that it's a wider performance issue. I think it's a symptom of their inability to break down teams who sit back against them or kind of maybe who go toe-to-toe at them as opposed to put pressure on them. I think Ancelotti has developed a very good system for countering stronger teams and that could well play in their favour when they go to Anfield the weekend. But Regarding Everton's prospects for this season, I think they'll continue to be hamstrung until they begin to sort out this kind of disastrous um, form uh, when it comes to playing smaller teams at Goodison Park. I don't know. I don't understand it, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I guess from an Arsenal perspective, Jasmine, John already mentioned the Arsenal-Leeds game. It was a f- fascinating game, very, very entertaining watch. What are your thoughts on Arsenal's performance? It was... I was quite excited for once, but if you ask any Arsenal fan at half-time, are you happy with a 4-0 lead? And they might crap themselves in front of you at the very thought, um, <laughs> thanks to history. Um, but it was a very exciting game. It was very fluid between the two teams. Um, I don't think I've seen a more clinical, um, impressive first-half performance, especially with what's been said and made of this Leeds team, I think in in, maybe not recent weeks, I feel like Arsenal were a bit unlucky with their loss against Aston Villa because it came down to one mistake to a player being played out of position. Um, They have been, if you go through maybe towards the start of the season, this could have been a game that Arsenal easily throw away but the way that they tactically set up um to deal with leads to basically force force leads on their left sides um by um leaving their left back without cover and Aubameyang just putting pressure onto Eiling they just couldn't cope in that first half uh and how they tactically dealt with the second half after conceding two goals and literally making every Arsenal fan fear for their life, putting on El Nenny to just kind of counteract the pressure Bielsa put in the centre of the pitch was a really good move to close it out. Um, so, yeah, it was quite exciting to see 
in the this quite turgid, tired times of the Premier League, a good quality attacking game being played. Um, Bielsa dealt with Arsenal's tactility and their substitutions made in the second half, really tried to fight up 4-0 and it worked for a period of time, but Arteta tactically outclassed him back. But yeah, mm. very exciting times. Not that um, you don't normally get exciting battles at mid-table, I guess. <laughs> it's so strange to consider Arsenal mid-table, but yeah, I guess that's the situation right now. Um, but for you, John, what were your thoughts on this game? I know you enjoyed uh, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang's performance. Yeah, he scored a hat-trick and uh, one of them was his 200th goal in uh, his league career, which spans across England, France and Germany, of course. But one thing I really loved in it, Brings it back to a point I made in maybe the first or second podcast. Uh, this is number seven, but um, I said how much I really liked Emil Smith Rowe and that assist he had for Aubameyang's last goal was absolutely sumptuous. Like I had to watch it back a few times because I swore the way he contorted his body was like he was he was like r- warming himself up to have a shot, but he managed to like deftly flick the ball into the path of Aubameyang who just headed into the net. But wow, it, it was a special, special assist from. Uh, Emil Smith Rowe, and then you know, in, in all of a sudden, Arsenal lose Ozil, and then they have another really good playmaker coming up, and instead, in Smith Rowe. So it's going to be really, really exciting to see how his career pans out. And it's just another, <laughs> it's another excellent attacking young midfielder that England have coming through. Yeah, certainly. I guess also with Martin Odegaard in the books, there it's kind of almost like he's leveling up the kind of maybe competition levels and for that attacking playmaker role. And I'm sure that his presence is bringing on Emil Smith Rowe uh, no end. But uh, Jasmine, why you want to say something? Um, yeah, I think the inclusion of Odegaard is why we signed him on loan this season, and I think that kind of set up um, really should put pressure and a little bit of concern on. The likes of Pepe, I would say Willian, but everyone knows that Willian hasn't exactly been performing. Um, but just the likes of Pepe, because that setup, and Lacazette also, because that setup works perfectly. It deals amazingly on how to attack. And then you have Sabayos really coming into his own. If you check um, Sabayos's expected assists, he's in the top, I think, 10, maybe 12 percentile of XG exists. It's just that they haven't been finished for whatever reason. Um, so that setup should worry both Arsenal because two of their better performing players are on loan, Erdogan and Ceballos, but also the players that they've signed actually have to fight for their places now. Yeah, certainly. John? Yeah, it just watching that game, it reminded me of like the peak era of Arsene Wenger with all of these kind of small interchangeable attacking midfielders. Like you almost swear you could have been watching like Hleb and Nasri and uh, Thomas Rosicki. It was <laughs> it was really, really nice to watch, I think. And it was a real throwback. So like it's like Arsenal kind of gone back to the future in that regard. Yeah, certainly. Um Arsene Wenger was actually on TV over the weekend. I know he has a job as a pundit for BN Sport, I think, but uh I thought it was really erudite. I can't remember what clip it was. I think it was the... He was analysing Liverpool's problems or something, maybe. But he's yeah. just such a smart man, really. I know kind of the way football changed. He maybe didn't adapt in that regard. But he's definitely a very, very erudite voice on football, for sure. Um, 
but you mentioned Danny Ceballos and Martin Odegaard, Jasmine. They're both on loan, of course, from Real Madrid. And the Madrid press practically every day is kind of, you know, updating uh, readers on their progress because it's a big source of fascination for uh, for them, for sure. And Madrid had a good week, to be fair. Um, they won 2-0 against Hitafe and 2-0 against Valencia uh, to put a bit of pressure on Atletico Madrid, who dropped points on Monday night against Celta Vigo. And they drew 2 all. Uh, they bounced back to win 2-1 against Granada at the weekend. Um, and they're now five points clear of Real Madrid. Uh, Madrid are in turn three points clear of Barcelona, who beat Alaves 5-1. A nice kind of morale booster, you could say, before the forthcoming uh, Champions League tie. And Sevilla are a point behind Barcelona in fourth. And Sevilla actually beat Barcelona 2-0 in the Copa del Rey semi-final first leg on Wednesday night in Seville. Quite an interesting game. Barcelona were the better side, you could say, but Sevilla was far more clinical when opportunities arose. And Sevilla followed that up with a 1-0 win over Huesca at the weekend. So very interesting developments, you could say, in Spain because you have the clear gap now of the top four kind of really pushing on and breaking away almost, you could say. Um, from the rest, uh, Betis beat Villarreal 2-1 at the weekend to kind of put more pressure on maybe Villarreal and Real Sociedad uh, on that kind of maybe cabal of teams who are kind of competing for the Europa League, you could say. Um, but there's a clear divide now between them and the likes of Sevilla and upwards. Um, but yeah, certainly interesting weekends. Uh, Atletico Madrid, their game against Granada was very interesting because their role Marcus Rente played. Uh, he was superb. He has been superb ever since he switched to that offensive position against Liverpool at Anfield last season. And he's just really operating at such a high level right now. It's quite interesting. Um, he scored and assisted to beat Granada at the weekends. And it was a very, very big win for them. Um, he's just a fantastic player, kind of playing more offensively where it is. He was always a defensive midfielder and his fitness level is just through the roof. Really kind of hard worker, uh, sacrifices himself for the team and weighs in with both goals and assists as evidence on Sunday and Las Carmenes in Granada. But uh, John, what are your thoughts on Marcus Rente? I know obviously you have maybe a somewhat harsh memory of him given what he did to you at Anfield. Uh, yeah, he actually caught, he actually named his dog Anfield after that. <laughs> um, he's a real Cholo Simeone player. I think you mentioned like his self-effacing work rate and how he'll give everything for the team and he'll sacrifice himself. So I think he like he's like the perfect personification of what Simeone looks for in a footballer. Um kind of maybe even similar to Luis Suarez as well. He's got that grinta, he's got that he's got that knife between his teeth and you know for for as much as Luis Suarez scores, he is a selfless player as well. So I think he is like the idyllic Atletico Madrid slash Diego Simeone player and I mean they're five points clear with two games in hand. I mean, if they blow it from here, I, I would be astounded. So, like, he, he'll he go to uh, Atletico Madrid as a former Real player and probably win only their second league title since 2013 and 14. So, it'll be a great story for him. Uh, he he was signed relatively relatively cheaply. He was on loan at Alaves, I believe, beforehand with uh, Lucas, or was it Lucas or Theo Hernandez who was with him? I think it was Theo Hernandez that was there. And uh, they both look very impressive in that team. So, uh he, he, he's been a very good signing, but they've, they've really nailed most of their signings recently. I thought that um, the summer before last that they they probably done even too much business. They signed an awful heap of players the likes of uh, Felipe and Llorente himself and João Felix. But uh, gradually after a betting in process, they've all began to click and they've been absolutely, they've been fantastic this season. Just even looking at their 
at their goals for and goals against column they have the best goal difference in the league and they've conceded comfortably the least so they're uh i think they're they're a shoe in to uh to win la liga at this stage and you really wouldn't want them over two legs in europe as a liverpool found out last season yeah certainly it's interesting because i think they're a very well balanced team you know and they've had a lot of covid cases a lot of injuries to the season but as you said last year was a bit of a season transition for them given the amount of business they did over the transfer window but the likes of say joao felix has kind of re-bedded in well into the team and also it's been helped obviously by the rival luis suarez because when you have a man who's you know currently leading Lionel messi in the pichichi race he's 16 goals to messi's 15 like that's invaluable when you have somebody who can score goals it's it's a game changer literally you know and then also you have Jan Oblek as I mentioned last week one of the best goalkeepers in the world in my opinion just kind of really a proper wall in the defense um but yeah speaking of Messi he was very very good against Alaves he's actually been extremely good since uh his contract was leaked two weeks ago I think he's certainly playing with a bit of fire in his belly um he's said to be a bit angry about all the constant talk going on with Paris Saint-Germain and the endless rumor mill and all this kind of stuff and I think he's very much channeling it in his performances um he was actually very good against Sevilla he had a couple of very very good efforts that were saved by Bono uh, and he was also very influential against uh Alaves he scored twice both goals were cracking goals actually the second one especially real kind of classic Messi finish and um, I guess it kind of follows up John on what we were saying last week about you know the magic of Messi with Jonathan Fadugba and just how good he is but for you Jasmine what are your thoughts on Neil and Messi I mean obviously he's having a, a decline of sorts you could say he's no longer the stratospheric kind of talent he was uh, since in the last decade or so but he's still very good isn't he yeah I think there's a point to be made when people say he's the best player of the world and I think since his contract has been linked we've got a new side of Messi one which has more of a point to prove and more angry I mean we've Mm -hmm. all seen the talented Messi but I don't think I've ever seen him angry before in the way that Barcelona and was it Marcel who leaked his contract um well how do you mean say that the person who leaked it Oh, Mar- oh, said the, the uh, newspaper. It was uh, yeah. El Mundo. El Mundo. El Mundo. Yep. Um, I don't think I've seen. I. I mean, personally, I always perform better with anger, and I think there will be some players who do perform better with something to prove and just that kind of emphatic energy behind them to force them even longer. And I think. We this is a new side to Messi that we're seeing because you can't always be the best forever, unfortunately. But I think this whole saga has given him a second win and he's definitely saying, all right, especially to Barcelona, okay, if we're going to do this, look how I do it. That's how all his performances of late have come off. And it's excellent to see this side of him. Yeah, definitely, definitely. He's such an interesting character because, as you mentioned, that's a valid, valid point, I think. Like, for so long, he's always been considered almost like a mute. And in the last maybe 12 to 18 months, when things really started to go wrong at Barcelona, he's become much more vocal in his Instagram posts and all that kind of stuff. And his, his personality is really shading through. And I think he's actually quite different how he's perceived. I think he's quite driven. He's quite focused. He's quite ruthless in many ways. And I just think he's a... 
very interesting character. It was actually very funny after the Sevilla game when they lost 2-0. He was in the pitch after the game uh, chatting with Papu Gomez, who's a fellow Argentine Sevilla player, newly signed. And they were chatting for a while. And then Lucas Ocampos and Marcus Acuna, who were injured, joined them. And then Sergio Escudero, who was, in, who was injured also, uh, sorry, who came off, uh, joined them as well. But they're all Argentines and they're all chatting in the pitch for like maybe 15 to 20 minutes after the game uh, had finished. It was quite amusing because everybody was so fascinated in the, in the Spanish press. What were they saying? What were they talking about? And they actually asked Papu Gomez what they were talking about. And he said, basically, Messi approached them. They're friends from international duty. And he was just like, so what happened with you in Atlanta? Why did you leave? I'm interested that you came to Spain all that kind of stuff. And then he said, well, then when Lucas arrived, we talked about his injury and then that's what we talked about, basically. But I just thought it was so amusing that this player was being quizzed, like, forensically about what he spoke to one of his teammates about. It's just kind of funny. I don't think any other player would generate that kind of, you know, allure, you could say. Um, but John, what are your thoughts on Messi's performance? Because I know that we had a long kind of quite, what's the word, quite superlative conversation about him last week. Oh, he's just spellbinding and he's superb. And if you were cynical, you'd maybe think, is he playing this well all of a sudden because he's trying to force someone's hand in some way, shape or form, whether that means a new contract at Barcelona or whether that means he's trying to get the powers that be at Man City or at PSG to maybe add a couple of extra zeros to a potential contract that's in the offing. Um, I guess time will tell on that. And as regards the power we had, he's a compatriots on the pitch or maybe he's just sick of talking to the same lads at Barcelona probably probably sick of Ronald Koeman as well so maybe he just wants to have a chat with people there in lockdown as well so <laughs> I think Paco Gomez is like maybe the little uh, version of Messi absolutely uh, he was astounding at Atalanta until he fell out with Gasparini and uh, I thought he was just such a typical Manchi signing for uh, for Sevilla they got him for a relative pittance and he's a brilliant player. I know he's aging, but like his game isn't really dependent on any kind of massive physicality or pace. So I think they can get a lot of years of value out of him and he'll prove to be an astounding signing. And, you know, he, he, he's joining a very good team. I know he wants to talk about Julian Lopetegui and uh, he, he, he's just, uh, he's, he's proving and he will be, I'm sure, a great addition to the squad that Lopetegui is building. Yeah, I really like Papu Gomez. I think he's a kind of character that suits Sevilla. He's very kind of spiky, um, maybe a bit arrogant on the pitch, kind of a healthy arrogant. Very, very talented guy. And I think he really brings a lot to the team that's been missing that kind of creative energy ever since uh, Everbenega left for Saudi Arabia last summer. But yeah, as you mentioned, Lapategui is doing a fantastic job. Sevilla now have won uh, nine games in a row and they've kept clean sheets in seven of those games in a row, which is quite something, you know. Um they're just a very, very, very good team in terms of they're just kind of perfect combination of steel and silk, you could say. And there's a lovely blend of kind of youth and experience. So you have the likes of uh, Johan Jordan, um, kind of very underrated, hardworking midfielder who's really exhibited his technical ability this season in the absence of Benega. Um, and then you also have even Rakitic beside him, who's not the player he was. He's aged quite considerably and it's affected his performance. But He's so capable of moments of magic like he showed against Barcelona with his goal, the second goal. A very well-taken finish. And he's also coaching through the likes of Jordan in midfield. I think he's an invaluable presence. And then you also you have, say, in the back line, you have um, Jules Koundé, who, in my opinion, is one of the most exciting centre-backs in European football. I've been a fan of him for a long time, not just because of his attributes, but because of his personality. Like, as they say in Spain, he's cold-blooded. 
literally. He doesn't feel pressure. He often breaks forward. What happens is Fernando, who's a kind of sitting defender, defensive midfielder, will drop back between the center backs, between Diego Carlos and Kunde, to make it a 3-5-2 in possession and release the fullbacks. Or uh, Kunde will actually break forward and become an auxiliary attacker. It's really quite intriguing to see. Not many other teams do that. Sergio Ramos does at Real Madrid, but uh, it's a unique system. Um, and then, of course, you have Youssef Naziri, who's banging in the goal as their right and centre. He's highly competitive in the Pichichi race. I personally think he's outperforming his potential right now. I think he's in a, a purple patch that won't last, but it's definitely an asset to have. Um, and yeah, Sevilla beat Barcelona 2-0 during the week. They look good. They look in a good shape to uh, maybe go to Barcelona and, you know, get through to the final. And if they do get through to the final, they'll be the favourites because they'll be playing inside their Atleta club or Levante, the other the near semi-final um so yeah very very interesting times for Sevilla um you want to say something John yeah just how happy and how pleased are you for Lopetegui on a personal level because he was often derided in Spain and he was found himself in the most invidious position in the summer 2018 Real Madrid came for him while he was Spanish coach on the eve of the World Cup and like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place I mean as a coach it's very very difficult to turn down Real Madrid but then it's a World Cup. It's like the biggest, it's the biggest event in the sphere of national team coaching. And then, of course, he does. He agrees to join Real Madrid. It turns out pear-shaped and then it kind of sullied his reputation in a lot of people's eyes. So it's really nice that he has this kind of redemption arc at Sevilla. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, that was a horrendous situation for him, wasn't it? Because he worked so hard to build quite a competitive Spanish team and they got to the World Cup in very, very good form. And then the Madrid job came suddenly. And as you said, what, what 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 can you do when that job comes? When you're a Spanish coach, it's you know, one of the two biggest jobs you could have in the game, that in Barcelona. So the manner in which that worked out, it was always doomed because first of all, succeeding Zidane with an aging team is always a big challenge. Especially when you're missing Cristiano Ronaldo and didn't replace him at all. Like didn't even try to replace his goals, you could say. So that alone is an issue when you're taking on a new job. But when you're taking a new job after being sacked by Spain on the eve of the World Cup, it's just making it a whole lot more difficult. So I think he was derided, as you said, and it kind of the Spanish press can be very, very, very intense, very, very high pressure. And I think they really can let him have it. So he was kind of almost derided as a figure of fun, you could say. So for him to go to Sevilla and work in tandem with Manchi, the director of football and build such a competitive team is testament to his ability as a coach because he's the kind of guy who can improve players and he can implement seriously strong systems and his in-game coaching is superb and the system he's building in Sevilla in terms of their tactics is very very ominous you could say for the rest of the Spanish game and for the rest of the European game even I think it's an interesting time because like looking at it coldly Sevilla and Atletico Madrid are the two best best teams in Spain right now by, by some distance, you know? Does it mean that they're better than Barcelona or Real Madrid? No, because you know it's a complicated situation. But I think that if they could win the Copa and go deep in the Champions League, it could be very, very interesting to see what happens. 
and might they look out this summer in the fact that invariably with Sevilla, Vultures will circle and pick off players from their squad, but there isn't a lot of liquidity in football right now. So maybe in, in a certain case, they might be able to hold on to what Campos, to Kunde, to Diego Carlos, whereas previously they may not have. And for once, they can actually build onto a winning team, whatever winning is in the context of Sevilla. Usually the Europa League, but I'm sure finishing top three in the league and a good run in Champions League is winning for them. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But I, I do think for Kunde, I think he, he he's going to go. I, I just think he's too good to not be snapped up. You know, his release clause is 90 million euros. Sevilla uh, turned down 55 from City last season. And of course, his value has increased exponentially this year. He's, he's changed. He's a much better player. So I would expect him to definitely be the source of interest this summer. From who? I'm not sure. United have been mentioned. Real Madrid have been mentioned. So I think it depends on, you know, the Sergio Ramos situation, the David Alaba situation, where he goes. So there's a lot of factors still in play. But for the likes of Ocampos and Diego Carlos and even En Naziri, I think they're definitely a better place to hold on to. Um, yeah. But but for you, Jasmine, just touching on Germany, uh, what's the situation there at the moment? Um, I know you mentioned that there was one big winner over the weekend and they, they weren't even playing. Um. I think I may have said that a bit too soon because they're currently 1-0 down to Armenia Bielefeld, but <laughs> anything can happen during this podcast. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty, even with Bayern playing right now, it was a pretty good week for them, even if they do lose thanks to the five draws, well, six draws throughout the weekend, all five Saturday games were draws, so the picture of the Bundesliga didn't really change. Um, but outside of the actual results of the Bundesliga, there were two very big stories that came out this week. First of all, Bayern have signed uh, Deo Oppermacano from RB Leipzig, who's um, 22, one of the best centre-backs you've seen for that age playing for the team that he does he's he's not the best on the ball but he's the best that you're gonna get for around 42 million euros and at 22 who already plays an experience with the league experienced with the champions league um he's a great defender um so that was a big win for Bayern Munich as well as the five draws but um what has currently tired me out today <laughs> is the news that uh, Gladbach coach uh, Marco Rosa will be joining Dortmund in the summer. So Terzic and his <laughs> unpredictable way of playing with Dortmund will not be Dortmund's flick, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of news coming out of the Bundesliga today. Um there's been a lot of talk about Marco Rosa um, going over there. It, it's been hanging over the club for a while. Um, basically, the step of direction that Dortmund want to go in, but also just the full rumours about Marco Rosa moving to Dortmund. Um, if anyone saw last week's gladbach Cone derby um, Marco Rosa just basically stared down a Sky journalist, which basically confirmed the rumours that something was happening. And today it was announced in incredible circumstances, really. 
it was leaked by Kicker, then um, confirmed by Gladbach themselves. So, yeah, uh, Dortmund are trying to once again fill that Jurgen Klopp hole that they've been missing and putting their faith in Marco Rosa this time, which, as a Gladbach fan, I still don't know how to feel about it, really. I guess I wanted to ask you about Gladbach first and foremost. Like, like how does this affect their season? Like, That's what I've been wondering. The timing of this coming out isn't the greatest. Like, both Dortmund and Gladbach are going to have a lot of history this um, coming month or next five weeks because they're both trying to end up in the Champions League spaces, but they both are um, six points off the pace of Wolfsburg and Eintracht Frankfurt, who have been consistently good, especially Frankfurt. I think Frankfurt actually have a chance to go second and be runners-up. But so they're both trying to chase for any European place that they can get because there's a real possibility that one of them might even miss out on Europa. So they're direct rivals for that. They're direct rivals in the DFB Pokal because they play each other on the 2nd of March. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of tension, rivalry. And I wouldn't be surprised if someone linked this news to try and get up forcing Gladbach's hand to force them into a state of uncertainty of where their staff and players might be in the summer. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, maybe a slight drop-off for them or if they all try and go all out, but there's everyone knows their coach is going in the summer for some a club that's bigger in history and has more money, so... Um, I, th- I would find some of their staff kind of hard to swallow with that news. Yeah, I can't imagine it happening in England, for instance. It just seems to yeah. be like, is, is, are the Germans more logical or something? Is that true? Is that is it that stereotype accurate? Like, how can that be, you know, lived with? Like, how, how is there an uproar? I think they're used to waiting for the new season for something like that to happen, but... There's something about this deal in particular that isn't sitting completely right with everyone. Just in the way that it was announced, the timing that it was announced, and also for people who are looking at Dortmund in a long-term view, if this coach is the right one to take them forward. We've seen it with, you know, um, Bosch, Tuchel, um, Favre, it's no one really knows what Dortmund wants to do. Do they actually want to challenge against Bayern Munich or do they want to keep to the, you know, finish in Champions League, try their hardest and hope for the best? This appointment to people who are interested in Dortmund's long-term game that, you, you know, they'll plod along for the next two years, finish in Champions League and sell their best players and it doesn't it despite it being exciting time for the Bundesliga it doesn't seem like a a signing for Dortmund to elevate themselves to a point where they were with Klopp or Tuchel and John I'll ask you in a second just your thoughts about Marco Rose because I know you have some thoughts about the 
job you think he could do with Dortmund. But just before I want to ask Jasmine one last thing, um, I have a piece coming out tomorrow morning, which will Tuesday morning, uh, about CV and Lapategi specifically. And one of the things I kind of was thinking about them is that, you know, compared to Barcelona, they don't have a philosophy or an identity in the way that's so commonly parroted these days. So for instance, you know, you think of Klopp, you think of a philosophy, you think of Guardiola, you think of a philosophy. And by extension, you know, of course, Cruyff came before Guardiola, but like Guardiola's style, modern style has greatly influenced Barcelona's modern style. Likewise, Klopp has now greatly influenced Liverpool and Dortmund. So my question for you is, do you think that that can actually be more harmful than good? Because for instance, Lapategi doesn't have an identity. He doesn't have a style. He's not a visionary. He's a football manager. And he kind of organizes teams in a way that will win games. And that identity lies in being competitive, being intelligent, and being strategic. So I guess from that regard, it is very much in line with uh, the kind of core identities of the club since Manchi has been at the reins. But for you, do you think that the kind of, as you mentioned, the kind of clock shaped hole that's left to Dortmund? Is that very, very negative in a way? And do you think that maybe they should go in a different direction to what Klopp was, even though Klopp is a great manager? But do you think that this kind of, it's like, you know, like breaking up with your ex-girlfriend and immediately going for <laughs> someone who looks exactly like her. It's a bad idea. Like, what, what do you think? Um, I mean, there is a point to be made there. And I don't <laughs> think Dortmund's board, the way that they've handled Klopp going and leaving in the right way, like, Tuchel's not the most the most compatible person. However, I think they had a world-class manager with Tuchel in and could have achieved similar things that they did with Klopp had they given him more time. I mean, I think Tuchel is the last person to win anything of worth at Dortmund in the DFB Pokal. Um, same with what Peter Bosch is doing at... Um, by Leverkusen at the moment they don't have the kind of same resources Dortmund have or Bayern have but yet in the top five six every season they didn't give him a chance not to say I I don't believe that he's a world-class manager in the same way Klopp or Tuchel is um, but he can do a job and I don't think sticking to a philosophy or sticking to a way the same way all the time works it can you can go the opposite way but you need the proper resource the someone who is a bit like Lepetugwe um the way he kind of manages teams um I think the way Real Madrid treated him was pretty poor and I think he could have done a very good job at Real Madrid but Real Madrid do have that kind of attitude where you have to be a big name or you have to be extraordinary and good isn't good enough, which falters sometimes. And as you said, he came after Zidane with an aging squad and without Ronaldo, so it wasn't the best time for him to take charge. And I think, especially with that, um, with how he's going at Sphere at the moment, I, th- I think it. It's perfect for them. It's not always the right case. For instance, Unai Emery at Arsenal, I would argue, <laughs> I would argue it was the same kind of thought process to be with them. And I think that was two different 
from a manager who had been there for over two decades to suddenly go to no philosophy at all. But in some ways, it, it can be beneficial. Sounds, you, you mean Emory sound almost nihilistic there, Jesus. <laughs> it, it didn't work, okay, guys? It <laughs> it's funny, actually, it's a common note, common refrain when it looks at maybe La Liga and stuff in terms of, you know, what content goes down really well. A, a big deal of the content is Arsenal fans about Emery. It's like... <laughs> don't, don't. It's like someone... It's like someone... It's like someone cyber stalking their ex, like literally, like it's like these Arsenal fans are lapping up content on Emery, but how he's doing a bit of But anyway, that's another story. But but John, for you, what's you reckon of these questions of philosophy and of the job that uh, Marco Rose could do at Dortmund? Yeah, the philosophy one is interesting. Sometimes I think it's kind of a a lot of it is kind of hollow rhetoric, and it's a lot of people who want to be seen to be jumping on certain bandwagons and who go on about philosophies. Oftentimes, philosophies are just really pragmatic. It's just a player playing according to the strengths of the squad he has. And everybody kind of thinks that pragmatism in football is a low block horsing the ball up to a big alehouse center forward who's going to elbow someone and trying to look to score from corners. But I mean, if you inherit the Manchester City squad as a coach, you know, pragmatism in that context would be playing possession football because that's what the players are attuned to and that's what they're used to so i think sometimes it can be a bit oversold the whole uh philosophical thing i think broadly every coach has a preferred way of playing but i mean you're not always going to manage in, in the perfect circumstances according to how you see the game so you have to adapt and the best coaches over a long period of time always adapt um, it'll be interesting, speaking of Marco Rosa, who would replace him? Could it be Jesse Marsh coming in from uh, Red Bull Salzburg? He was someone that was linked with the Dortmund job, but now that Rosa has taken the Dortmund job, it, it could be it could be a route there for him. It's a, it's an attractive job. Um, Mönchengladbach is a big club with a lot of good young players, so uh, I think that's one worth keeping an eye on. Um, as for Rosa going to Dortmund, yeah, I mean, okay, I don't envision a scenario where they can managed to hold on to Sancho and Haaland in the next, say, 18 to 24 months. But what that does mean, though, is that he will have an awful lot of money to play with. And he'll have also players like, assuming to keep him like Giovanni Reina and Yusuf Makoku coming through. So however you dice it up, he's going to have a lot of money and a lot of good young players to work with. And going by his uh, his very you know progressive and fast pace and pressing style of football, I think it could suit most of the personnel they have there. And yeah, they uh, <laughs> they have this like Klopp prototype manager that they always try to fill. I mean, Tuchel done it relatively successfully. Favre not really at all, to be fair. So I think they're going to think maybe it's going to be third time lucky with somebody like um, with somebody like Rosa. Also, yeah, uh, Peter Bosch was there. That didn't work at all either. Actually, he's doing well at Leverkusen, so it's more than third time lucky. They've uh, they've rolled that dice quite a few times, but uh, may- maybe it'll pay off this time. I mean, his back catalogue is impressive. Um, I hope he brings his assistant manager with him, who was a. Uh, Who's the ex? Uh, who's the ex football bo- blogger? A uh, very interesting guy. I heard him interviewed on Melissa Reddy's on Melissa Reddy's podcast recently. So it'll be interesting to see whether he can uh, he can bring the same backroom team with him. Uh, Dortmund, you know, uh, they've been kind of marooned in a bit of a in a bit of a nowhere land over the last couple of years. But it's such an attractive job, uh, given the factors that I mentioned and also the history of the club. So. 
to to end the long-winded answer um i think philosophies can be overrated in football <laughs> i also think that rosa will be a shrewd appointment for dortmund yeah i guess maybe tuchel probably gives out less hugs than Klopp, though to be honest i reckon but, uh, anyway but jasmine you wanted to say, say something um I my only kind of question is is that there's a real possibility that Dortmund don't get Champions League and there's a possibility um that they don't even get the Europa League and if that were to happen their pull into getting yeah they'll have money to spend but on who would want to go there over if over a Champions League Europa League club um is my only concern right now yeah certainly and just ask you about Erling Haaland specifically because the Madrid press are obsessed with him unsurprisingly (laughs) completely obsessed like genuinely I think I've written more stories about Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe the last three months than most Spanish footballers but so the latest news coming out from Paris is that Mbappe is going to stay at PSG for another season that's what they're saying apparently it's a rumour so if that's the case Madrid are going to gun for Haaland. I want to re- ask you, what do you reckon about his future? Do you think he'll stay at Dortmund for another season? I know there's a clause in place, a gentleman's clause, uh, for, I think, 75 million euros next summer. But there's obviously a chance that um, a club could go big for him this summer. So w- what do you think? It's really hard to see if he leaves. Um, if they don't make... A European competition, I think him going elsewhere is very, very viable. Um, he's a great striker. Everyone knows that. Um, he has worked with Marco Rosa before, which I think there is some pulling power there. Um, but if there's no biggest tournament where he can win, I don't see a reason why he would stay at Dortmund. Yeah, certainly. What, what do you reckon, John? You, you conspiracy theory bubbling, I see. Well, yeah, like <laughs> I'm absolutely not going to stand over this because it's a rumor, but apparently the Norwegian national broadcaster has bought rights to La Liga, so that would make sense in the light of uh, the links of Haaland to to uh, Real Madrid. I mean, the thing with Haaland is that he's so young that like he can go somewhere for a couple of years and then get another move and then another couple of moves. So... And it's the same with Mbappe. I mean, people will talk about whether he can go to Real Madrid now, but like they can both go to Real Madrid later after even a big move now, if if that's an itch that they want to scratch. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see how how their two careers progress over the next couple of years. And I think I think we mentioned in the podcast last week that Haaland Mbappe is going to be the new Messi and Ronaldo in three or four years. They're going to be the high watermark that all centre forwards are measured against. Yeah, I think you might just be wanting Liverpool to sign Mbappe. That's your kind of ulterior motive there, but I'll leave you have it. It was a, it was a reasonable, reasonable point. <laughs> I have a Carlo Ancelotti cocked eyebrows. You said that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then I guess yeah, just to finish off things, the Champions League and Europa League is is back. We've more football to go for you, Jasmine. Don't worry. You won't have to go through a week without football. So yeah, so Barcelona playing PSG as we mentioned. They have a grudge match now because, of course, PSG are quite shamelessly um, fluttering their eyelashes at Lionel Messi. It's actually quite remarkable given the extent of how they've pursued him. Like, I mean, you've Pochettino talking about him, Leonardo talking about him, Neymar talking about him, Leandro Paredes is talking about him, and Angel Di Maria talking about him. So you literally have the coach, the sporting director, his, for- his best friend, 
international teammate. Two of them. It's quite remarkable. Anyway, uh, Leipzig are playing Liverpool. Um, interesting game. Porto, Juventus and Sevilla are playing Dortmund. So just start with you, John. Um, why are your thoughts ahead of Liverpool-Leipzig from the Liverpool perspective? Can I just say that it's absolutely hilarious to see Barcelona having one of their players publicly tapped up after the absolute shameless pursuit that used to go on. Uh, I remember... At Coutinho, Rain- Coutinho. Yeah, Reina didn't even play for Barcelona and he got a Barcelona jersey during Spain's World Cup celebrations in 2010 and stuck it on Cesc Fabregas. Um, they more or less publicly stalked Javier Mascherano telling everybody when he was at Liverpool that they, he had Barcelona DNA. Uh, Coutinho, as you mentioned, using their various media mouthpieces to unsettle a player on the eve of Liverpool's Champions League games. So it's actually quite funny to see the shoe on the other foot given the uncouth way they All pursue right. other players. I, I I just have a lot of history of Barcelona and tapping up <laughs> Arsenal players. I just want to throw that in. I'm just going to say Cesc Fabregas and just leave right now. Yeah, I can. Don't worry, I can feel your pain. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a nice moment for this podcast. Um, <laughs> speaking of Leipzig, Liverpool, yeah, Leipzig are, are second in the Bundesliga as we speak. What's been really impressive about them this season has been their defense. Usually I kind of associate maybe a Nagelsmann team would be very good going forward, but maybe a bit liable to being turned over in the counter-attack. But they've only conceded 18 goals in 21 this season. So they've been quite solid. Obviously, a big part of that is Deo Upamecano. And now he's announced that he's going to Bayern Munich at the end of the season. So, you know, when Liverpool are in such bad form as a fan, you have to clutch at every available straw. So I'm going to hold on to that little ray of potential hope in the, in the context of this clash. Um, I think in terms of a stylistic match, it's probably good for Liverpool. I envision it being two games of football rather than just like how invariably the Liverpool game goes where the opposition just sit in. And in the last couple of months, Liverpool have been unable to come up with an answer to these low blocks. But I think Leipzig will attack Liverpool and they probably should because this is the most vulnerable Liverpool are going to be and have been. But at the, at the same token, uh, Liverpool do still have the personnel to to harm them. So I think... I think this is probably going to be one of the better ties in terms of a spectacle. Yeah, certainly. It's definitely going to be interesting. But Jasmine, for you, do you reckon, like, first of all, say maybe Thiago could have more joy against Leipzig given that he kind of knows them inside out and he's accustomed to playing as players like that? Uh, and also, do you reckon that Julian Nagelsmann is going to be wearing some atrocious gear? Oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> I, I mean, I know they lost badly against Man United with that setup that he was wearing, but. <laughs> oh, it, it was fun. Um, in terms of Leipzig's play, though, um, I honestly think that they really should. It might be a draw in the first leg, and but I do see Leipzig um, progressing throughout the tie. I think the way Liverpool are playing right now, and especially against the less that Leicester game, um, in particular. If Liverpool just keep the ball, that will suit Nagelsmann's game plan. I think um, that just suits Leipzig best if they keep mo- if Liverpool keep most of the ball, and then they'll try and build up play with the back three, and like we've seen, and just the way that they demolished teams in the group stages after their loss to Man United will be the way that they go forward about it, but. Um, I don't feel like they'll change their game plan with Liverpool despite the Reds' um, kind of disadvantages at the moment. I think they'll go about in the same way and I think that will suit Leipzig better. 
And for Dortmund, how do you think they'll set up against Sevilla? Would you be would they be confident heading to Andalusia or what? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think Terzic is especially with how well Sevilla are playing and the confidence behind them and the lack of confidence and managed workload from the Dortmund team. I honestly think that this is Sevilla's best chance to like move into the quarterfinals. Um, I think they have one of the easier opponents of the quarter uh, of the round of sixteen. Sorry, and yeah, I think if Joker Tegui wants to do something with a Sevilla team, this will make the this will make him. Yeah, it's interesting. They also rested several players for the game, and they're quite good in the injury department too. So. They'd be quietly confident, I'd imagine. And Barcelona, too, are missing a few players. Gerard Pique actually trained with the first team today. So he could be in an outside shout to come in. He hasn't played since um, November when he was injured against Atletico Madrid. And he's made a kind of almost miraculous recovery, really. Uh, Ronald Araujo, who's kind of maybe one of the best centre-backs in Spain this, this season, is also injured. He kind of sprained his ankle uh, last week. So he's kind of maybe possibly coming back but he hasn't trained with the first team today so it's a bit dodgy um and then of course you know that leaves if neither of them can make it back you only have Samuel Mtiti uh Clement Longley who's out of form and Oscar Mingueza and that's really at center back and that's not really three top class center backs that you'd want to face Kylian Mbappe and the like I know Neymar is of course missing but um but still but yeah it's, it could be interesting week of Champions League football for sure and John I guess just kind of rounding off who do you feel is going to progress in these games so I think that the the difference and maybe the new surrounds although it's going to be in it's going to be in Budapest which also probably helps Liverpool as well it's not going to be in Leipzig Stadium I think that will probably have a revitalizing effect on this Liverpool team and I think I think I can see them going through I think they have a lot of good muscle memory in Champions League football if you exclude if you exclude last season, um, they made two finals in a row in two of the last three seasons. So I think they have a lot of know-how at this stage of the competition. And like they're, they're, they haven't become a bad team overnight. Um, their form is terrible, but I don't think they've become a bad team overnight. And I think uh, I think that experience in that class will show in this tie, although it'll be, it'll be mildly close. Um, I think Sevilla will have too much about them for Dortmund. Uh, Tarzic, I feel bad for him. I mean, he's he's on a hiding to nothing. No matter what he does, good, bad, and different, he's still going to lose his job, so to speak. So I can see Sevilla progressing there. And I think PSG will comfortably handle Barcelona. You mentioned the three, they might only have three centre-halves available. Uh, two of them are left-sided centre-halves. So, I mean, are they going to play a back three? Are they going to put two players who don't really have too much chemistry together in the heart of the defence? Or are they going to play players like PK, who mightn't necessarily be ready and to face up against a ridiculously quick Kylian Mbappe. So I can see PSG progressing there. So I think overall it'll be Liverpool, uh, PSG and Sevilla out of the ties you mentioned. Mm. And Porto Juve, do you have any thoughts on that one? Juventus are such a strange team. They draw an awful lot of games. Um, it's, they're still getting to grips of what Pirlo wants, but I think... I think with Ronaldo in this competition, he's a different animal. And I can just see basically of his form alone, I think they'll have too much for Porto. Yeah, I think so too. And um, I should mention with Barcelona that Koeman has played Frankie de Jong as a centre-back at sometimes this season. Um, not ideal because de Jong is kind of playing very well as a marauding midfielder. But if needs must, he could be seen as a better option than in Mingueza, who is a talented 
he's a decent player, but he's not a Barcelona player, not a Champions League player. So he's very he's only a stopgap really at the moment. Um, and Samuel Tiddy is just a shadow of the man he once was, unfortunately. The new Aguero, would you say? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, but for you, Jasmine, what are your thoughts on these four Champions League ties? Um, hmm, I think Leipzig, Sevilla. I don't know about PSG Barcelona. I think that one's too close for me to call. And I think Juventus. I mean, I, I just the PSG Barcelona one, I just don't know how either team's going to set up at the moment. They're both in just this weird kind of time. I think PSG slightly edged that one. Porto Juve, I just don't know. I, PLO does have rotation down as like madman but that's about it on my feelings on that one i would say juventus just because of caliber yeah yeah i think so too i think i fancy juventus against porto sevilla against dortmund i think liverpool against leipzig and i reckon that barcelona could be psg i have a weird feeling that this is messi's last dance and I reckon there could be a surprise in the cards. I don't think they have this, this, uh, the um, consistency to win La Liga, but I think they could do something in the Champions League because when they click, it's very, very interesting. And Messi is Messi, of course, but, uh, but we'll see, sure. And then just in the Europa League, uh, Real Sociedad playing Man United, uh, Benfica playing Arsenal, Granada playing Napoli, three of the interesting games. Uh, Real Sociedad are in a very, very bad run of form, to be honest. They kind of... Started the season like a train and then fell off quite heavily. Um, they did win at the weekend against Granada, against uh, Hitafe, sorry. Um, but they're not the team they were at the start of the year. And I'd have to fancy United for this one, I think. And it's also not in Spain because uh, they can't let in UK uh, people into the country. Uh, Benfica Arsenal, obviously Benfica are in the city at the moment that I'm in, Lisbon. And the vibe is not good. They're not doing well in the Portuguese league. Uh, they're well off the pace. Jorge Jesus now having the desired effect. Lisbon are sporting, sorry, sporting club the Portugal are running away with it. Uh, and then Granada and Napoli. Granada are also in a poor run of form. And I know Napoli are too. I know Gattuso is under pressure, but I think that their victory over Juventus the weekend where Lorenzo Insigne made up for that Coppa Italia, Super Coppa Italia, uh, penalty miss with a penalty conversion, I would fancy Napoli to win that game. But uh, for you, John, what do you reckon about these three games? Yeah, I think like you mentioned, a neutral venue uh, for the Sociedad United first leg will 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 tilt things in the favor of uh, of United. Uh, Sociedad are an interesting team. They're quite uh, robust defensively, but their kind of goal scoring has let them down somewhat. Uh, despite Alexander Isak starting the season like a house on fire, I also really like the cut of uh, Mikel Oresabel. Mm. I think uh, I think he's a very interesting player that we could see maybe m- move into a to a bigger club in the years to come, but I certainly think uh, United will win that. Um, Benfica, despite the massive uh, spend they had last summer, they spent a lot of money, even in terms of wages, for free agents such as uh, Jan Vertonghen. They've Mm. been abject this season. I I watch both their games against Rangers. Uh, God, I'm a terrible Irishman, but uh, I just like to kind of see how Steven Gerrard would fare in Europe against the better teams. And uh, both games ended in draw, but like... Rangers should have beaten them out the gate in uh, in both legs, um, especially in Portugal where Benfica were down to t- ten men for a large for a large portion of that game. So uh, they haven't been impressive at all for me this season, and uh, I think Arsenal will win that. And I think Arsenal should really take this uh, competition seriously because it's a chance of more silverware, and also it's a 
it's a more realistic chance possibly into the Champions League than than uh, through the league. So I hope Arsenal kind of prioritise this competition and, you know, over two legs, I think they could be a very uh, tough nut to crack. So I definitely fancy them to go through. And I think in the other game, I'd say, yeah, I think Napoli, uh, Gattuso is under a lot of pressure there, but they, ha- they, have, uh, they have some excellent players who can win games like Chucky Lozano and uh, Victor Osimhen. So I think uh, Napoli will go through. A few Jasmine. Yeah, I think Napoli will go through just because of sheer quality. Arsenal really should go through because um, they've thrown away their FA Cup. They're off the pace for Champions League. Um, this And even Europa League looks a little bit doubtful. That's something they should prioritise. And I've forgotten the other games because there's so many in this. It's basically round of 32 and most of the Games can't be played in their home leg country. So I have absolutely <laughs> lost the plot of what Europa League is right now. <laughs> yeah, um, I, think Man United, I, I can see Man United messing out <laughs> because of the trajectory that they're on at the moment with Holly. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite over. I think if we went through all. All uh, 16 games, we'd be here for quite some time. So I think I cherry picked a few of the most interesting ones. But, um, but yeah, that's 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 pretty much it, guys, for every, everything. Thanks very much for joining me. Um, John, do you have any any pieces to plug this week? Any Anything's coming in the pipeline? And also, what's your socials? Uh, I wrote quite a long piece today and why I think people are failing to see the woods for the trees regarding Liverpool's form and, you know, are look, not looking at it in the correct context. I think a lot of the criticism of Klopp and the players has been way, way over the top and just, frankly, the be-all and end-all of their issues is the injuries and, you know, that has residual impacts so everything comes back to the injuries. So that piece will be out on Anfield Index in the coming days and you can find me on Twitter at NotoriousJOS. Wonderful. And you, Jasmine? Um, I've written some pieces recently, one for my own medium, which you can find at my Twitter, which is underscore Jasmine Barber. But I'm also guest writing for Spielverlagerung, um, which included the Leicester-Liverpool game over the weekend, a tactical analysis. Fantastic. Sounds very good. Sounds very interesting. Uh, and then me, of course, and Azul Feely, as always, on Twitter. Um, and I have that piece I mentioned earlier coming up tomorrow morning, just kind of comparing, contrasting Barcelona and Sevilla ahead of their respective Champions League games this week. Um, and yeah, should be interesting. Interesting week of football ahead. Um, I'm sure there'll be some good games, there'll be some bad games, there'll be some games that have us questioning our philosophical choices in life to become football fans. But uh, anyway, thanks guys. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you next week.